Greetings, everyone. This is Denise Long, your host for The Social Contagion. I am glad to be back on the mic. Um, it has been an interesting few years. It has, we're at the end of 2021, which is hard to believe for most of us. I feel like uh, two years just up and went by just like that. Um, we've seen a lot of change happening in our country. We've seen a lot of people waking up to the reality of our social and political environment and the actions we need to take to get to change. So I'm very excited to be back with you. Uh, today, I have a very special guest um, as we're talking about the social, personal, political change that our nation and our world needs to see. Um, I have joining with me Greg Marcel Dixon. Greg is, Marcel is running on a reparations platform for U.S. Congressional District 6 in South Carolina. The incumbent for that district is James Clyburn, and Marcel is challenging uh, Clyburn for that seat. Uh, please welcome Marcel. Marcel, thank you so much for joining. I'm really excited for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I am excited as well. Yeah, so we've had an opportunity to meet because of um, my advocacy and uh, elevating the the need really for reparations for slavery to descendants of slaves and freedmen. And your background and your history and your enthusiasm for leveraging national politics toward that end really stood out to me. So I'd like to uh, take some time in our conversation today to get to know you a bit, to get to know more about your history, your family lineage, um, as well as the needs in, in the district and the nation that you aim to fill by being elected um, as a national Congressperson. So um, let's start out by telling us a little bit about, about you. Tell us about Marcel and who you are and your background and the like, and what brings you to this table. Well, you already told people my name, Greg Marcel Dixon. I am a descendant of the Sea Island Creoles, but we are more properly known as the Gullah Geechee. We are the descendants of the enslaved Africans who were primarily brought from what is now modern day, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Congo, Cameroon, and Angola, which was then the mm -hmm. Kingdom of Congo from modern day Southern Nigeria and the Senegambia. Um, we were sought out for our proficiency in cultivating and growing rice, animal husbandry, and also at growing indigo. And being that this region of South Carolina is called the Low Country in Georgia as well and Northern Florida is referred to as the Low Country. It's a coastal plain, it's very swampy, very marshy, and it's subtropical. We were adapted to this climate and we grew, like I said, long before cotton was king, rice wore mm. the crown. And it was our rice growing abilities that made the 13 colonies wealthy, made them a viable and we were able to maintain a lot of our ancient African practices and traditions and customs because we lived in areas that were infested with malaria, snakes, alligators, the white enslavers would often go further inland because they couldn't put up with the hot, humid, subtropical climate. We could, and South Carolina had an extremely large 
black population. It became majority black in 1703, and for the most mm. part, we stayed that way until 1960. So because of the overwhelmingly large black population, and because we were isolated from white people for at least a good majority of the year outside of parts of the fall and winter, we were able to maintain more of our African influence than other parts of the Americas, giving us a very unique culture. We made it mm. uniquely American. So it's a Creole culture because it's a mixture of different cultures and languages and practices from different African ethnicities. And I grew up in this area. I love this area. It's a bitter irony, however, that this mm. area was once one of the richest regions in the world. And now it's one of the poorest districts in the United States of America. It is the sixth poorest out of four 135 congressional districts. And this is after Clyburn being in power for 30 years. We're in the sixth poorest district. I feel and know my people deserve better than that. And when I say my people, I'm referring to all my constituents, but especially those who are descendants of the Americans who were enslaved, the Gullah Geechee. We deserve better. We have yet to get better. I'm going to get better for us. Thank you. Thank you for that. So I, I'd love to, to delve into just a bit of the very rich uh, Gullah Geechee history and its impact. You talked about the um, intentional, right, um, labor sourcing. I, I, I hesitate to call it labor sourcing because that almost sounds like people apply for a job and we know that's not what <laughs> slavery was, right? right but they intentionally, right. <laughs> they, the enslavers intentionally sought uh, skilled Africans to enslave, to bring their skills to particular areas of the United States, um, and of course other parts of the world, but we're talking about descendants of U.S. slavery today, um, the rice cultivation and things like that. Talk to me a bit about the Gullah Geechee culture and help the listener understand more about its uniqueness compared to um, you know, the other 35, 40 some odd million uh, Black Americans who are descendants of slaves, but not necessarily Gullah Geechee. Can you help parse that for people? Definitely. I get so angry when I hear people mention Louisiana Creole, Louisiana Creole, as if New Orleans and Louisiana has the monopoly on Black Creole culture, when mm. actually the Gullah Geechee have been in existence longer than the Louisiana Creoles. Sometimes we'll call the Sea Island Creole, but no one really says that, Gullah Geechee. One thing that's very unique about us, and I didn't appreciate this until I started traveling more, is that we eat all varieties of rice dishes. Okay, we got mm. a dish called red rice, and sometimes people call it Savannah red rice or Charleston red rice to distinguish it from Mexican red rice. <clears throat> it's made mm. it's made with, by simmering cooked rice and tomato paste that has been seasoned, usually with garlic, green peppers, and onions. And then you add sausage and shrimp until the rice absorbs the tomatoey broth. And it's extremely good. We have Hoppin' John, mm, which is good. a rice that's cooked with fill peas. You cook it in the broth of the fill peas, and they absorb it and give them this extremely rich brown color. And you add fat back 
and bacon to it and filled peas, of course, and is named after a man who was in Charleston, an enslaved gentleman named John. Unfortunately, he was abused during slavery, so he walked with a limp. But he sold this dish, and it became so popular among the white population in Charleston that he was able to buy his freedom and his family's freedom, hence the name wow. Pumpkin John. We have all types of purlus. Purlus, or sometimes people want to say the name pilaus, it refers to different types of rice stews. We have crab rice. We have a rice called jungle rice, where we put all types of shrimp and alligator, all types of um, the sea creatures you find in our surrounding area. Mm. Hence why they call it jungle rice. We have the yellow rice. I can go on. We do shrimp and grits. We have she crab soup, <laughs> crab macaroni and cheese. We do our form of gumbo. We sometimes it's called tomato and okra stew. It's different from the one you get in Louisiana because we don't use the roux. We use tomatoes. We do fried shark. We do uh, my great grandmother's call them drop biscuits, but they're like little fried corn cakes. It's like mm. a pancake mixed with cornbread, but mixed with. I forgot what you call the thing that Jewish people eat, those potato pancakes. It's almost like a combination of those factors. So we have very unique cuisine that's extremely popular. People travel here from all over the globe to enjoy Gullah Geechee cuisine. We have our own language. A lot of people mm. my age and younger, or even in my mother's, my parents' generation don't speak the language, but I'm going to learn it. But I know some words. Kuta means turtle. Yes means ears. Tote means to carry. Um, chigga or jigga means bug, even though we call hmm. the little red buzz chiggers. It comes from yeah. the Goober means peanuts. Juke means to dance or to party mm. crazily. These words have been absorbed into the American lexicon, Southern American lexicon. We also Yeah, as a Mississippian, juke joint is right. something that I'm quite familiar with. Right. Well, juke is originally a Gullah Geechee word. We have... Our folklores, we have hags, we have hanks, mm. which are spirits. Spirits, yeah. Usually who linger around the swamp and marshlands. We have the plat eyes, which are vengeful spirits, but we mark where they are by putting the icon of an eye on a tree. And of course, we have the hags, which are demons like vampires who suck the energy out of people while they sleep. We put we have a color that's unique to us. As you can see, I'm wearing it. It's called Hanked Blue. Mm -hmm. Hanked Blue is a color that we believe repels evil spirits from us. And if they come close to us, it converts them into good spirits. We have the blue bottle trees, which you probably have seen throughout the Gulf. But it's a Gullah Geechee thing originally. We put the blue bottles in a tree. That's believed yes. to trap evil spirits who come there, or it resembles the sea and evil spirits fear crossing the sea. We do our sweet grass baskets that are not found mm. anywhere else outside the continent of Africa besides in our region. And being this is December 30th, we have watch night, which we sometimes call Freedom's Eve, where we meet in churches and we stay up late at night. I've never done it. My great-grandmother did it religiously. It started in Beaufort, South Carolina on the eve of the Emancipation Proclamation. And it's almost like a triple A meeting <laughs> or AA, yeah. I call it anonymous meeting mm -hmm. where people like share their stories, share what they've been through and mm. they sing and they offer each other comfort until the new year arrives where everyone mm. then 
shows strength and solidarity with each other. And whereas yeah. other people might gather at Big Mama's house, and we do that too, when we all want to gather as community, we gather around an oyster roast, or we do a dish called Low Country Boil, which is a stew of corn, potatoes, crab legs, and sausage. And you take the big barrel and you just throw it out on the table and everyone eats with their hands, the potatoes, the corn, the crab legs, the sausage. And we just talk about what's going on in each other's life. Yeah, that, so wow, that's, that's phenomenal. And it's no making more. me hungry as well. But, you <laughs> know, when you talk as about- well, we have a form of voodoo called root which yes. is originally called hoodoo. Hoodoo is a Gullah word. People now think of hoodoo as black folk magic, but originally hoodoo right. is a Gullah word that meant luck, usually bad luck, but we call mm -hmm. it root. So it's a very unique culture. I, we don't have time for me to go into all the details. That's just the sure. gist of it. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it helps to paint a picture. Uh, I think people hear Gullah Geechee because we're certainly familiar, right, with with the culture and the people. But um, it's it's another thing to hear um, someone who is a Gullah Geechee today in 2021 um, share that culture. You know, um, my family is from Mississippi, but, you know, being a descendant of slaves, as I look back over our records, we have folks from you know, the records that we have from Maryland, from Virginia, yeah, from the Virginia, like, yes. and it's all of the words, yeah, all the words that you mentioned are ones that I heard my grandmother using regularly as part of her speech. Uh, I, I also, I yeah. I heard from a lot of people from Louisiana and Mississippi, and a friend of mine's, I'm going to shout him out, Lionel Riley, who was like a major resource of knowledge for Louisiana, but the Gulf said that there was a migration of people from the Gullah Geechee area to Louisiana. And because mm. a lot of people I meet from Louisiana, Mississippi, tell me we do this type of tea called everlasting tea, which is a medicinal tea we do from a bush. They tell me it's some equivalent of that in the Gulf. So I have been trying to do research to that, but that's very fascinating because I've heard that before. Yeah. Well, you know, over those 250 plus years, right, of enslavement, you know that our people were married, intermarried, sold, and so they bring their culture with them, right? Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things my grandmother used to do is she cooked greens all the time, and I can't make a batch of collard greens or a cornbread without thinking about her and how she always had us eat our greens with our hands, and the idea there was that it was more like um, a spiritual communing with your food to provide nourishment to you. So always we ate them with our hands. It was the only food really that, you know, you would think would be, you know, for a fork or whatever. But she always had us eat it with our hands. And when you eat with your hands, and I know other ancient or indigenous, if you will, cultures do the same thing. African cultures, indigenous, aboriginal cultures eat with their hand. And it is a communion with the food. Yes. And it's a different feeling when you do that. And I think for folks who aren't used to eating with their hands, it seems a little uncultured. So to speak, but quite the opposite. It's very cultured and it's very rooted in something very spiritual and connected. Yes, it is. And it's, people have to experience it to appreciate it. My community was destroyed, unfortunately, as many Black communities are, and it's still happening in Charleston, South Carolina. My, not far from me, just an hour from me, they're trying to run a road through another historic Black community. That's exactly mm -hmm. how they destroyed mine, eminent domain. We yes. were either going to have the highway literally outside of our porch 
or we were going to have to move. So, of course, we were pretty much not given an option, even though they made it seem as if we were. And unfortunately, the community where my great grand aunts lived and all my cousins lived and my I was staying where my great grandmother and my uncles and my mother and my father lived is gone. So I haven't mm. had that experience in such a long time. And when I tell you, I think about it all the time, the older I get, the more I realize how important it was to have that community. I realized how I never feared for my safety because I had all my cousins around me mm. and my great grand aunts there. And if you were going to come and fight one of us, we can fight each other. If you were going to come and try to fight one of us, you were going to have to fight all 40 something of us. We'd be like, oh, what's going on now? But now <laughs> I don't have that. And I, mm. I maybe I'm extrapolating a little, but I realize the onset of my depression correlates a bit with the destruction of my community. And I read about black children, black girls, but especially black boys committing suicide at a higher rate. And I can't help mm -hmm. but think, because before we had institutions on which we could rely, we had the church whether for good or bad, it was an era where we could meet and network and we had communities. You had your cousins next door, your great grandmother there, your grandmother there. We had people on, we had shoulders whom upon we can we can cry. Now we don't have that. And I now see that with my experience. Like I have my cousins all live in this region. I haven't seen them in God knows how long. They haven't seen me. We know each other. We're in this area, but we don't know where each other are. We're so disconnected. So it is an experience and people can say what they want to say about it. If I can get it back, I would do it. I would do it right away. Yeah, absolutely. Now you've, you've mentioned quite a bit there. You talked about how questioning if the disruption of culture has an effect on the well-being of the people who are in that culture. And we know that to be true, right? So we look at Native American culture, for example, and how um, they talk about the grief and the trauma, the historical trauma that happens from having your culture disrupted. And when you look at Black communities, um, especially Black communities of the 50s and 60s before the uh, great expansion to the suburbs and the great expansion of the highway system and how so many of those booming even Black communities um, were disrupted and the effect that that has had in scattering people and affecting people's well-being as well. Um, I'd love to talk more about um, the district that you are running to represent and sort of its history and the significance of South Carolina even in our nation's history. And I'd love to get to what has motivated you coming from this rich culture. You're an educator um, as well. What motivated you to decide to put your enthusiasm, your history, your passions toward running for Congress? Can you share those things with me? Uh, growing up, I was fortunate, not that I wasn't impoverished, but I always had a set of my cousins living next door who were so impoverished that I realized that I should be grateful for the more, quote unquote, that I had. Mm. However, I knew that all of us deserves more. And when I talk about poverty, I'm talking about there was a relative of mine. She lived towards the end of our community and she used to have to go 
to the restroom in a bucket. She and her son. And Same they here. Have, <laughs> yes, right. Mississippi, like Mississippi Delta, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm preaching to the choir. And they will have to throw it in the backyard. And this wasn't in no darn 1960s or 50s. This was like 80s, 90s, early 2000s. That's how some people are still mm -hmm. living here. Absolutely. And I knew, of course, like nearly every Black American knows, of course, you have the coons among us. And that's what I call them. That's what they are. Who will say, well, I ain't no victim. Okay, whatever. I think most Black Americans realize that we have not gotten our due from this nation. But I was not as familiar with the specific data. So a long story, I am a teacher and I teach in the impoverished county, which has the lowest performing school district in South Carolina. And being that you are Mississippian lineage, you know that if not for like Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana, Usually, this, the positions change. South Carolina will be at the bottom, educationally speaking. Usually, it's mm. Mississippi, Alabama, or Louisiana that keeps us from being to the bottom. I am in the. I went to the lowest performing school district in one of the lowest performing states educationally. So that's just to mm. let you give you some idea of my educational history. Yeah. However, I did not want to do what I saw so many do, and that was leave my area. I wanted to stay and give back. So I bounced between jobs for a while, and then I started subbing. And when I realized just how behind a lot of the students were, I said, I have to do something about this. So I taught them as if I were their teacher, because I was subbing long term. And the teacher for whom I was subbing, she came back earlier than what she was expected to come. And I was put in another school. And when the kids saw me walking to my car, because all the schools were on the same campus at the high school, I was at the middle school, they came running to me and they brought, pulled out these sheets of paper. These kids didn't know how to divide, like mm -hmm. basic division. What so grade level? This, these were third graders at this particular time. They didn't know how to divide, and this was basic division. So I showed them how to divide and I gave them a test. And then unfortunately, because I was a substitute, I was pulled out and sent somewhere else. So these kids started pulling out crumpled sheets of paper. And I was like, what does this kids want to show me here? So the teacher had graded their division tests and they had all made 90 and above. And they were so proud. They held on to those tests for weeks mm. in their pockets so they could show me. And when I saw that, I oh, said, wow. this is what I was meant to do. So the principal of that school, shortly thereafter, offered me a scholarship, an academic scholarship, so you know it wasn't much, to go to school and get my teaching degree. And mm -hmm. like I said, I chose to stay here, but it's been bittersweet. And unfortunately, the bitter far outweighs the sweet. I've dealt with administrators who have targeted me, not because of anything wrong I was doing with the children, but because I was determined to do right by the children. I was determined that if I saw one of my students, keep in mind, this is a majority black, rural and poverty district where I grew up, I was not gonna send the message to my students of any color, but especially my fellow black American freedmen descendants of American slave students, that they can behave in ways that were unacceptable 
and do so with impunity. So I was very hard on my students. And most parents loved it. Most teachers loved it. But there's always a small minority of parents who kick and scream the loudest. But a lot of times, it was not even the parents. It were administrators who felt that I was a threat to their position or who felt that I was probably showing them up. So I had to deal with administrators. One even told me, I don't know why you're teaching these kids these big words. Those words aren't practical for them. Instead of this administrator Yikes. happy that I am expanding the horizon of these students who are probably not going to hear, quote unquote, big words at home. And it's a school's responsibility to expand the horizon of students. That's why their parents send me. I've never had a parent never a black parent, at least, complain about me teaching their kids, quote unquote, big words. It's only come from administrators. I've had administrators, when I've helped my kids learn how to magnetize an item, say, well, look at this kid. He spelled the word battery wrong. You should be happy that he could define what a battery is. Mm. But outside of that, I saw some of my kids who had soared underneath my tutelage only to see them later on regress and not just regress to open the newspaper and see they were either in jail or either they were dead. That usually happened with the boys. Do you think that has, let's talk about that for a minute. Cause we know the preschool to prison pipeline and I want, I, I, that, that exists in, in this nation and we can talk about it with, you know, a straight face. It's troubling to me that we funnel children from preschool to prison, preschool to prison pipeline. And um, we aren't, we're trying to and still discussing what it takes to dismantle that practice, right? Let's talk about what I hear you sharing is low expectations, um, a resistance to dreaming big with children who have limitless potential and how you feel that relates to the current state of the district that you're running for in district six. Can you, can you, do you see a connection there? And how do we change that? Absolutely. The biggest issue that my current administrator usually implores me to assist with within my current school is combating low expectations. There was something George Bush, the second one, Jr. said, I'm not a fan of his, but he said that low expectations is bigotry and racism in disguise. Mm. And he was absolutely right. Because if you don't care enough to have high expectations, and then hold students to high expectations, then you are not going to do so. And then when those same kids end up dead or in jail, and that's usually the case with my black boys or with my black girls who had such promise, because all of my students had promise, and you mm -hmm. see them working in the service industry, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but you know they had a dream once upon a time. And when I see them, I can look in their eyes and tell that they have had the dream and the hope beat out of them. It's because mm -hmm. no one cared to help them, to help them reach the dreams which they had. And I'm getting a little emotional because I was that kid. Mm -hmm. I was that kid 
who had hopes and dreams. And because no one cared enough from the school expectation, usually the administrative level, not my teachers. My teachers did a lot with the little they were given and with the extreme challenges they were given. They were literally given the problems of anti-Blackness centuries long, put on their shoulders and told, solve it. And my teachers were phenomenal. Most of them were. I'm talking from an administrative level and not necessarily one administrator in particular, but the entity of administration. And I also Is that discipline? The discipline, but also politically speaking, okay? Because even with the administrators, I'm not making excuses for them, but a lot of them are given school districts that have been troubled because the communities for a long time have been troubled. And people always say to the administrators, well, you're getting a big check. And they say to the teachers, well, you're getting a big check. Ha, 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 on that part. Right. No one says to the politicians at the federal level, what are you doing to make the conditions better? I am a teacher. I've done many, many field trips. If something happens to a student on my watch, automatically I am going to be to blame, even if it's probably not really my fault. Because people are going to say, if a kid is crossing the street, get hit by a car, you did not set conditions in place to ensure that child's safety. If people can mm. hold me accountable for that, why can we not hold these politicians accountable for the conditions of the community that either sets a kid up for success or for failure? And people like to use this 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 slogan, this this model. I can't stand it. All politics is local. That is BS. That's just an excuse that people use when citizens get fed up and say to the federal politicians, why are things not better for me? I say, if all politics are local, then why aren't the local politicians getting the big check? Why is it the federal politicians who get the big checks and get the big donors if all politics are local? Then why do we even need federal politicians? I will say mm. that to those federal politicians who like to say that. If all politics are local, then y'all don't need to exist. It's a lie and it's an excuse they use to absolve themselves. To answer your question correctly, the prison, the preschool, the prison pipeline is absolutely fed by two things, low expectations and a un an unwillingness to hold students and parents and teachers and administrators and politicians accountable. But all of that is fed by anti-Blackness because it's not a coincidence that when you go to some of the, more, the poorest, most troubled communities that are the most resource deprived, they are usually some of the Blackest communities because which communities were infested with drugs, which communities were deprived of having their tax dollars worked for them, which communities were are, have the descendants of people who experienced race massacres, who have had their history obliterated, who were lynched from trees, who never received a penny in wealth, and who are still going through that legacy, have poisoned water, poison air, the least funded schools, no access to hospitals, no access to food. It is always the majority black communities, freedmen. So absolutely, low expectations was fed by anti-blackness. I don't like George Bush Jr., but he was right on that one. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Wow. Wow. So I see your logic model there. And that calls me back to the slogan of your campaign, which is repair Black America to fix 
America. Now, when your average person who's perhaps a little reticent about discussing racism and anti-Blackness and, you know, with the whole uh, debacle and mischaracterization of CRT, which I am not a champion for necessarily, but the reality is that race plays a significant role in both our history and our history is but a foundation for our present, right? So when we say repair Black America to fix America, the average person might think that they don't benefit from that. Can you clarify how repairing Black America fixes America and how repairing Black South Carolinians, repairing freedmen, helps all South Carolinians? You know, I always tell my students, I'm never going to tell you what to believe. I'm going to give you the skills and strategies that you need to dissect information you receive and then you decide what you want to believe. But I'm always going to give you the facts because there's two things Mr. Dixon ain't going to do. I ain't going to lie to you and I'm not going to argue with you. And it was something you're never going to be able to do is say Mr. Dixon lied to me because that's just not going to happen. Let's look at South Carolina historically. The blackest state in the union, it was the state that gave the 13 colonies its first source of wealth. In that sense, when Black America, even though it was still the British colonies, but when the Black part of America seceded, it made the entire 13 colonies rich. You see, when the Black people did well, the 13 colonies did well. But guess who didn't benefit from that wealth at all? The Black citizens. Let's fast forward to today. There have been several studies, one ground mark study, I can't remember the particular article, but it was in Market Watch, showing that at the low estimation, anti-Black racism has cost mm. America $16 trillion at yeah. the least, okay? That's not just Black America, but here, check this out. If it's cost America $16 trillion, but they're not the ones who have been through the race massacres, the lynch mob, had their leaders assassinated, had their fathers thrown into prison by being framed, because it's not a coincidence that Black American men are the most likely to be wrongly arrested and wrongly convicted, and 70% of the people convicted of a crime but later found to be innocent are Black men. But no one wants to talk about that who are underfunded, communities are poisoned. It's not a coincidence. Black America has had to pay a lot more, even though we're the ones that are owned money. There's another study showing that anti-Black racism has cost Black Americans $70 trillion. And yet, mm. even though Black Americans are to the bottom when it comes to wealth, even though we are the ethnic group, the average Black American has been in America, the United States of America, not North America, but the United States of America, longer than the average white American. Mm -hmm. Yet we have the lowest wealth, the lowest income, the shortest lives. We went from owning 15 millions of acres in 1950s to now just owning 1 million. Mm -hmm. And our communities are the most likely to be poisoned. That is not a coincidence. Yet, when we still put in trillions and trillions of dollars into the American economy, Black Americans receive the smallest amount of the PPP loans from the American Rescue Plan, right? But there was a study sh done shown that Black Americans were the most likely 
to start their own business with mm -hmm. the little bit of money they've gotten. So we are and have been since the 2000s and probably have been since we landed here or were brought here to this here place. We are the group most entrepreneurial. And for our population, we know we're more than 15%. We know the census undercounts us. They've undercounted us by 20%. So we know we're undercounted by at least 8 million or some, but let's just entertain that. For our population to be 15 million, we spend an outsized amount of money in the economy. So the more money and wealth that Black America has, the more wealth America will have. And let me say something to any white person who automatically scoffs at the idea that we deserve reparations. First of all, we don't need your approval. We don't need you to understand or to approve it, okay? We are old reparations. You don't have to agree with it, but it's the truth. That's the first thing. Second of all, however, there is a study done showing that as much as Black Americans have been through, our population is still growing quite healthily in spite of all the stuff we're going through. The population that's declining is white Americans, even though they are overcounted by the census. And they are, they had to come up with a new term called death of despairs, meaning death by suicide, alcoholism, and drug overdoses. And when they when sociologists examined the reason why, they said a lack or a failure of the American government to adequately make sure that people's wages kept up with the cost of living that has skyrocketed since the 1970s. They said the lack of the failure of the American government to provide safety nets for people like mm. health care, like food assistance, like jobs that could be available for people who may not have more than a high school level education. Those are things that Black Americans have been pushing for for the longest even but the assumption we, is that we or that you know when people think about welfare they they see a black mother right we can thank the president uh, i believe it was reagan and and others who popularized this idea of a welfare mm -hmm. queen being a black woman with a brown a black baby on her hip but the reality is that most welfare recipients are actually white women and their families um and the reality i hear you saying is that people need social safety nets because stuff happens in life in a capitalist society where people lose their jobs, companies downsize, companies go bust for whatever reason, even significant companies, and people need a social safety net, both for their basic needs and also for their well-being is what I hear you saying. And that benefits all Americans. Exactly. The When Black America benefits, America benefits, but it has not been the true in the reverse. America mm. has done well on many occasions, and they violently excluded Black Americans from their growth. Yet, studies have shown when Black Americans start businesses, we are the most likely to have a quote-unquote diverse staff. Mm. We will put our money back in the community. Policies that will benefit Black America will benefit all of America. But Lyndon B. Johnson said it best. He did a study on poverty. He spoke to a lot of poor whites in the South. And what was in the Johnson's conclusion is one of my favorite quotes. He said he came to the realization that all you need to do for if a poor white person feels they're better than someone, 
They won't notice they're emptying your pockets. They mm -hmm. said, hell, give them the best colored man to look down upon and they'll empty their pockets for you. And Lyndon B. Johnson was an admitted racist from Texas and he knew white racist people well. He was saying that some white people are so anti-black that they will rather suffer than see black Americans get their due. Well, I say this, we gonna get our due. So if you are so anti-black that you'd rather suffer, then go ahead and suffer away because black Americans are going to get their due and I'm going to make sure of it. But for the white Americans who sincerely wonder how they're going to benefit, whatever benefits black America will benefit America because we have fought for America. We've built America. We sustain it and we pour our money into it. But I want to say real quick too, that's not really fair because when white America was benefiting from the Homestead Act, getting free land, when white America was benefiting from the GI Bill and had the largest investment in, from the federal government mm. putting and black folks were excluded. Exactly, blacks were excluded. The New Deal that benefited many white Americans. Not, I wonder, were white Americans wondering, what about our poor black American brothers and sisters? No. So I find it quite disgusting that when black Americans are fighting for things to which we are entitled, we deserve a hell of a lot more that we have to always explain to white people how it's going to benefit them. But when white Americans have historically benefited and they have $200,000 in wealth compared to just at the high end, $24,000 in wealth to a black family, they don't stop and say, well, how is this going to benefit black Americans? And that wealth calculation is... Um includes all black Americans. And so part of this conversation about reparations, right, really does require us to be really quite specific about the black population we're talking about. We're talking about freedmen and descendants of slaves. And we're talking about people who are the multiple grands or even some people's our grandchildren of people who were formerly enslaved mm -hmm. in this country. So we're not, we're talking about people who, who were here prior to 1900, prior to the wave of European immigration. We're talking about people who are not recent immigrants. We're talking about the folks who built the wealth of this nation that makes the United States of America the shining star that it is that everyone wants to participate in the, the economy of. So we're talking about people who have a legacy here of three, 400 years, seven, 20 generations even, who should, considering that, be some, among the richest people in the country, um, actually. So what I hear you saying is not a raise all boats kind of thing, but the reality is that given that racism and anti-Black racism has cost the United States economy so much, it benefits America to repair Black America, given that so much of the issues, social problems in the uh, Black community are because of poverty that systems have created over these multiple generations, repairing the economic base of Black America through reparations, raises and solves and provides resources that are absent. And that lack of resource causes a lot of problems to begin with. So I, I'd love to shift to, does that properly characterize what you're saying? And then I want to shift to, as we're um, 43 minutes in, I want to shift to your top priorities uh, for your platform. 
It perfectly characterizes what I am saying. America is a wealthy country. We should not have the level of poverty and violence and sickness that we currently have. Because you have poorer nations that where their citizens live much longer, have better schools, people are much happier, don't have as much violence. I strongly believe that America is a cursed country until they do right by Black Americans. It will never have the peace and prosperity it can truly have. And yet, I want to say this real quick, and then we can move on. It was another study done showing that America still gets trillions of dollars from the infrastructure built by mm. enslaved Black people and from inventions or innovations mm. that Black people have done. So just imagine how much more we could contribute if we got to which we were due. Even if we weren't going to contribute, we still deserve it. But just imagine how much more so. <laughs> Absolutely. A amen to that. Amen to that. Um, and, you know, it's not lost on me that the White House itself was built um, by enslaved people. Yes. Wall Street many of the things that we don't talk about, and it's really time that we we do elevate those things. So let's talk about your top, let's take three priorities, your top three political priorities to transform <coughs> um, your district as well as our nation. Clarify for me what those are. The first one is land ownership for freedmen. And I just want to clarify, freedmen, I'm not mm. talking about all Black people. Yes, I love everyone, unless you're an anti-Black bigot. But and define freedmen for us. Freedmen refers to people who are descendants of the four million people who were emancipated at the end of the Civil War. Descendants of people who were enslaved by the American government. If you were enslaved by the British in Jamaica or you know the Spanish or Spaniards in Colombia and you're black, that's great. Yes, you are a descendant of the enslaved, but you are not a freeman because you are not descendants of those who were enslaved by the American government. Your lineage is not here. So land ownership, like I said, Black Americans have lost 15 million, <clears throat> 15 million or 14 million of the roughly 15, 16 million acres Eight, they owned yeah. in the 1950s. <clears throat> that it's estimated to be somewhere around $90 billion. That's not even including interest. That's the current, the the current wealth, the current uh, wealth of that Estimate. or cost right. of that. Wow. And that's not including interest because you better believe interest is going to be added to these things. Because when we lost land, we lost opportunities we could have had if we had access to equity. We had opportunities to develop. We had opportunities for farming. All those things were lost. So they're not just going to pay us for the land that was lost. They're going to pay us for the lost opportunities. We're also going to get that land back. And not only we get that land back, the system of heirs property. For those who don't know, heirs property is when a person owns a piece of land and they die without bequeathing the property to an individual. Now, some people may be saying, why didn't leave a will? Why didn't leave a will? Well, first of all, Black Americans were not allowed to learn how to read and write. So how would they leave a will when they couldn't even read and write because they were violently kept from doing so? Second of all, at the end of slavery, we were wealthless. There are stories in South Carolina of our people being so impoverished that they were literally going and eating rotten food from the bodies of dead soldiers. 
from both the union and the confederacy, okay? So how were they to pay for a lawyer to leave a will? Third of all, in a lot of states, and I'm pretty sure South Carolina, because whenever there's something anti-black going on, South Carolina is, hold my beer. So I'm pretty sure South Carolina is no exception, but in states like Louisiana and North Carolina, they pretty much made it all but illegal for black Americans to consult with a lawyer. So there was no way for us to leave a will. So America forced us into the system of heirs' property. In a world of equity, I would be a pretty wealthy guy because my family owns several pieces of coastal property that we've had from the Port Royal experiment, the first time where Black people ran their own town, were emancipated by the government at the beginning of the Civil War, and Special Field Order 15, the closest thing we've gotten to reparations. Mm -hmm. That property is probably worth in the millions because of its historic value alone. But because of heirs' property, you don't get equity. You cannot develop it. The most you can do is put a mobile home on it. And even with that comes restriction. If you go through a hurricane, because I live in a very subtropical area, so we get tropical storms, hurricanes, you cannot get a loan for it. You cannot get grants for it. You cannot farm on it. You can do timber, lumber farming. But even with that, you have to find all ears and come to a decision. Finding all ears is difficult. Mm. And even when you find them, you have to do a process called clearing the will. And here's another thing. Most judges and lawyers don't want to deal with heirs' property because they don't understand it. So if they don't understand it, how are Black Americans who have historically been denied education violently and are still in schools that are very underfunded so we don't get the highest quality education, how are we supposed to be able to navigate a system that even lawyers don't want to deal with? Because I'm going through that right now. So the government is going to undo heirs' property through the Bureau of Land Management. They're going to provide us with the legal resources. They're going to help us find our heirs. They're going to clear a will. They're going to give every heir full equity. So if a family was five and the property worth a million dollars, every and the family is now going to 70, all 70 are going to get a million dollars plus interest, okay? Secondly, they're going to divide the property so we can all have a lot or an acre. And if the family has grown so large that the property is minuscule now in comparison, they're going to have to find property of equal value. And they're going to do that via eminent domain, buying available property and then dividing it amongst us. They've done that to destroy and take Black communities from us. They're going to do it now to repair it. Reparations. Then we are going to have federal land set aside for us in all 50 states. We fought in every war. We built the nation, fought for it, sustained it, while they were fighting against us and lynching us from trees with American flags. We have a right to all 50 states, whether they have a history of slavery or not, because slavery was a federally uh, was federally allowed. It was never constitutional, mm. but it was federally allowed. So the federal government participated in it, and now they're going to undo it. My second thing is going to be public safety. I don't get into this whole defund the police debate. I feel that this is the most important part. Police brutality is obviously an issue. I know I had my, they shot at my brother 56 to 76 times, not one bullet grazed him. And then he, they took him to court saying that he tried to murder them and he was found not guilty. In a, world, yeah. in a real world, that should have been worldwide news. When has a black man ever been accused of trying to murder police officers and found not guilty? Well, my brother was. So no one needs to tell me about police brutality. I know about it. But we mm. act like that's the beginning and end of the criminal justice system with black Americans. Public safety is just as much an economic and racial issue as anything else. Because everything is rooted in anti-blackness. You want to fight 
You want to fight, you want safer communities, and you want to fight against violence, you need to fight against poverty. You want to fight against poverty, you got to fight against anti-blackness. So my public safety plan is going to be to, first of all, after Black Americans get their land back, they're going to have full control over their communities. <clears throat> I'm introducing something called community policing. I've done research on this, and this is one of the few areas where sociologists have studied poor black communities. Community policing is where the police become more like social workers. Instead of just coming in after something violent has happened, they go in be proactively. They work with people on the ground. Black Americans are the most intelligent people. We don't need anyone to tell us how to solve our problems. Yeah, you caused our problems and you're going to fix it, but we've been solving problems. We've been solving problems that we haven't caused since the beginning. We've been solving America's problems, and we've been the only one trying to solve ours, even though we don't have the resources. Community mm. policing will give resources to people in the community, the Black communities, to solve our issues. It will help us to get our nonprofits funding who have to show that they're benefiting us. The police officers will work alongside of us. And for the most violent neighborhoods that exist, they will only patrol those areas and develop a relationship with people there too. That will be a thing called deterrence. Also, there are things that can be done that have nothing to do with police officers that makes communities safer. Infrastructure. Mm. Uh, studies have shown that parks with a lot of green space for community people to meet and to, and to engage with each other, areas that are walkable, good street lighting, all that stuff diminishes violent crime. Having homes that are occupied, the more violent homes you have, is showing a correlation with the most violent crime. Mm -hmm. Also, we will have things like guaranteed, government-funded and provided health care, quality child care, Kids tend to get into trouble when they are not well supervised. When I was growing up, I had my grandmother and my great grandmother. Times have changed, but parents have to work. So we still need people to watch children, quality, trustworthy people while they're working. Mental health issues are often at the root of a lot of violent crimes. But where are people to access mental health? They cannot afford it. And my mm -hmm. district has the highest level of people without health insurance in South Carolina. We also want to have an increase in social workers to work with communities to bring help, bring attention to the issues there. Parents are going to have a four-day work week, hopefully, where they can spend more time with their children. Excellent. And the third thing is going to be education, obviously. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned the social worker and policing, and it's fascinating. There's been some research that shows that in some schools and school districts, there are more school resource officers or police officers, if you mm -hmm. will, in the schools than there are social workers for the students. Uh, so talk to us a little bit uh, uh, and summarize your education plan. Education is so critical. It's a, a foundational institution within communities and many of our school districts are failing to produce students who uh, can even read at a 12th grade level, yet they graduate. Tell us about your education plan. They're especially failing Black students when you have like 75% of Black boys in some areas who cannot even read or do math on grade level. 75%. That were white children with that higher rate, it will be considered a national crisis. But when it's Black children, it's considered, oh, yeah, normal. Black kids dying from drug use? Oh, no problem. 
White people, now it's opioid crisis. Let's pour resources into their communities. You see how they treat us differently? But I'm going to take care of that word. So my educational plan, pretty much, every, the American government funds schools in ways that is really counterproductive. It's funded by property taxes. So if you're in a poor county, like where I grew up and went to school, the tax base is much lower than in Beaufort County, which is next to me, and one of the richest counties of South Carolina, has a high tax base property taxes. So the richer, the richest areas, they get the most resources, but the kids in the poor areas need more. Usually kids in the richer areas are going to get their resources, whether it comes from the school or not. Kids in the poor areas are usually only going to get it if it's provided via the schools. I'm going to set a, a standard that each state gets enough so a kid can have a high quality education. Each county will contribute what they can via their property taxes, and then the federal government is going to fill in what is left. I'm going to make it where schools can get federal dollars to provide a ratio that will be able to be effective of counselors and psychiatrists for the student population. Now, I am not one for removing the police officers from the school. I'm a teacher and I'm not gonna sit here and say fairy tales and, oh, you don't ever need them. No, if anybody's been a teacher, you've seen extremely violent students, you need extremely violent mm -hmm. life. Any teacher who's been in an environment where it's some challenging behavioral problems will know police officers are needed. But with police officers in the community and in the school, there's going to be a federal database where if a police officer has broken the law they are supposed to uphold, they're not going to be able just to go to another precinct, get all scot-free. No, they, the federal government will intervene and prohibit them from doing that. Also, if a police officer is not held accountable, that's sending a bad message. You're supposed to uphold the law. If anyone should be obeying the law, it should be you. You should be saying to everybody, please hold me accountable. If you have the authority to use lethal force, you should be begging to be held accountable. Any police officer that has a problem with that, I'm finding that very suspicious. If you don't want to be held accountable, but you want the authority to still use lethal force. So that being said, police officers will be subjected to at least bi-monthly background checks to make sure that they are not supporting any type of hateful, terroristic ideology. If they do not feel that scrutiny is appropriate, then you don't need to be a police officer. That needs to happen. You cannot be hating people based on their sex, creed, religion, or language, and yet you're supposed to be trying to protect them. But there will be police officers. There will also be an infusion of social workers. I will want to merge the social department and the educational department so they could assist families, not penalize them by taking their kids from them, help them keep their kids by providing them with their needs. Jobs will be incentivized to give parents time all to meet with the teachers. Parents who are struggling to make it will be provided with tools to keep in contact with their teachers, like government-funded cell phones, so they can keep in contact with their teachers, and their teachers of their, their children will be able to reach them. So equitable funding, pay raises for teachers, starting at a minimum of sixty dollars to $65,000, but also for support staff cafeteria employees, bus drivers, paraprofessionals, janitors, custodians, receptionists, all those people play a crucial role in a school Absolutely. System. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, so what I hear from you is really um, planned action and collaboration 
to be really intentional about addressing the problems that and the barriers that we're seeing um, in our schools and even in communities to work with folks to see see real change for however long those programs need to exist, the programs that you mentioned um, in education, healthcare, um, and the for public safety and the like. You've shared a lot um, in your thinking about and your logic model for how to actually transform communities and the outcomes, the results of uh, what happens in those communities. What are your asks from voters and those who are listening? What, what are you asking them to do? What would you like them to do? What's our part, so to speak, right? I'm not a, a registered, I'm not a South Carolinian. So, um, but what are you asking both the voting public in South Carolina to do, as well as the larger American public? We like to think of our states as separate and they are in a way, but all of our states influence the outcomes for the rest of the nation. What are, what are your asks of us all? Well, one, I'm asking all of us, Black, non-Black, whatever, to start being comfortable demanding more from the government. I reject Amen to that. that slogan that Kennedy said, don't ask what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I'm sorry. We live in a country where Americans have, especially Black Americans especially, built it from nothing poured their blood into this soil. And if there's anybody who disagrees with that, well, then let me speak for Black America. No, for Black America, it should be, don't ask Black America what we can do for our country. Tell this country to do what they should have done a long time ago for Black America. How about we try that one? But all of us need to be comfortable demanding more from this country. Let mm -hmm. me explain something. We have this attitude that it's normal that if we get sick, we can need to go into debt for healthcare that if we lose a job, it's an embarrassment to get unemployment. No, we should be getting unemployment and then some. We should be getting unemployment and free vocational training and college education. We need to demand more from this country because let me tell you, if anyone looks at history, and I study history, I'm a social studies teacher, countries fall usually from within. Usually countries as powerful as America, they don't fall from a foreign invader. They fall and collapse from within. They fall from more decay, but they also fall when there's a breakdown of uh, families being able to sustain themselves. That's why most governments, it's not even a debate, know that it's a privilege to invest back into your citizenry. You are supposed to sustain your citizenry. Make sure they have good food and adequate housing. It's time for us to start demanding more. That's one thing. Two, I want people to understand. Now, you don't have to understand if you don't, Rachel's going to give a damn. But if you, I mean, hey, but I want people to understand until Black America is well taken care of, this country ain't never going to have peace. So I need people, white Americans who may not see it this way, y'all better start getting with it and understanding that. Black American issues are your issues too. Mm. Yes, we will always get the worst of it. But as you're seeing with the white American population declining, and it's because of the same, some of the same issues that black Americans have been going through for centuries, lack of wealth, uh, despair. If black America does not do well, neither will you. Last but not least, I need people to understand that we deserve better and it's time for us to vote like it and help me to replace James Clyburn as the U.S. 
Congressman, representative of U.S. Congressional District, South Carolina District 6. And they can do that in several ways by helping me. One, they can volunteer, help me make phone calls to my fellow South Carolinians. I'm trying to do what I call the Freeman Phone Bank. We reached 357,000 South Carolinians with the reparations message. That would probably be the largest outreach for reparations in this country's history. Two, I definitely need money. I work. I am from a poor family. I'm a teacher, so I don't have much money. So I have to work. I can't do what Clyburn does in golf and have a team out there just doing everything for me. Every policy on my platform, I research. Every interview I've had, it's been things that people reach out to me. I've had to arrange it. I'm doing this alone. But with money, I can take advantage of mass marketing to help um, to help spread my message, to help people see that there is better for us and we deserve better. And my website, in case everybody wants to, is marcelforcongress.com slash donate. Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, for F-O-R, Congress, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot com slash donate. If I get just like 500 people to subscribe to do a monthly donation of just $5, I can get $2,500 a month. That may not be a lot to Congress, the Congress, congressional elected officials like Clyburn, but for me, it will be a lot. And unlike with the money that may go to him, y'all can believe it'll be going to your own good. Excellent. So folks can reach you at Marcel for Congress dot com and you've made your asks and that is really clear do you have any final thoughts for listeners yes i want to say that people there's a lot of debate about progressive progressiveness progressivism and all this stuff like that and bernie said alexandria ocasio tez and yana presley and west black americans freemen we are the true progressive voters. We have always been the most progressive in this country. While you had some people, white people, who were anti-black bigots and the people who sat back and allowed them to enslave us as well, sitting there debating, well, is slavery, is it right? Is it wrong? And they had long debates about it. We were on the plantations already saying, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. The Constitution says that we are creating equal we have equal rights. When people were debating during Reconstruction about whether we should have equal status in the country we built and were fighting for and have fought for the Revolutionary War, the Civil Wars, where they would have lost without freedmen, soldiers mm -hmm. signing up yes. to fight, Black Americans were already ahead of the curve. We already knew that we were entitled to be treated as full citizens. And when we did the civil rights movement and those anti-Black laws were repealed, it really should have just been for us. But every group benefited. White women have benefited the most from civil rights legislation. Ain't that something? White women who were 40% of slave owners benefited the most from the Civil Rights Act that my grandparents and great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents who were alive too when I was alive, well, during the 90s, all participated in. Mm -hmm. Reparations is the next era where Black Americans, freedmen, and our allies, because there are white people and non-Black people who do support us. There's only some white people and non-Black people who've gotten it. 
who are with us, we are once again ahead of the curve. If anyone is out there saying it's not going to happen, you're a coward. And if you are a freedman, you're an embarrassment because our ancestors done did what people were telling them were never going to happen. Now it's our turn to do what people done said was never going to be done. He is Marcel Dixon. His campaign promise, I will say, is repair Black America to fix America. Marcel, thank you so much for extending your time with me today to have this conversation and the very best of luck to you. Thank you, Denise, for having me. And I'll come back to you after I'm elected. To celebrate. I would love it. <laughs> Look All forward right, to it. Care. You thank too. You. Bye.